Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Isn't it good sometimes just to be still, be reminded that the Lord is God? And no matter where you are in life, no matter what you may be going through, no matter what circumstances you may be facing, that God is sovereign over it. You know, it's so funny because sometimes I think we, we think God got caught by surprise along with us. Don't we? We get into the middle of something, we lose like all perspective on everything. And in the midst of it all, we forget that we're, in, uh, we're on a journey and it's uh, for the sake of eternity. And God is doing a work in our lives and, and he wants us to know him. He wants us to learn to walk with him by faith. And so there's really nothing that catches God by surprise. In fact, God sometimes orchestrates the very things that frustrate us because he wants to teach us to trust him more. That he's already got this, that he's got it covered. And so as believers, the question is, how are we walking with the Lord? How are we saying yes to him day by day? How are we growing in Christ? How is God transforming us and then being revealed in and through us? And that's by his grace. It's not by our works. It's certainly not by our effort, although effort is involved in following God. There's work that's involved. But at the same time, we recognize that it is a work of God in us to accomplish something that only he can accomplish, and that's grace. Praise the Lord for it. Well, we're going to look at uh, uh, Exodus chapter 15 and following today, and, and we're picking up the story, right? Israel has been set free from slavery, from the land of Egypt. Uh, we've gone through all the plagues. We got to the last one where they had the Passover. They took the blood and, of the lamb and put it on the, the doorpost and the lintel of the homes. The angel of death passed over uh, if that blood was there. And now uh, they've been set free. They went into the Red Sea and God divided the waters for them. I love the, the picture of the Lord standing between them and the Egyptian army. It's such a cool thought when you think about how our enemies come against us. The fact is that they, they really are coming against the Lord. And the battle is the Lord's. And the question is, are we trusting him in that? Do we, do we recognize that? And are we walking in that? Do we rest in that? Uh, and so many times that uh, whole story, that picture comes up in the midst of Israel's journey. And now uh, they're through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army has been decimated. And in chapter 15 of Exodus, Moses sings a song of praise. And I'm not going to go through all this. Just suffice it to know that there's so much detail in this that establishes exactly what has happened uh, that we've talked over the last few weeks. There's a huge praise celebration. Uh, right? There's dancing and there's celebration about the fact that they've been released, they've been freed. Little do they know what's about to face them. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that how it is? We get through spiritual victories and we go, man. I can remember my dad telling me one time when I was playing soccer. I hated soccer. I'm sorry. For those of you who like soccer, I personally think that it's just, you know, whatever. Um, God bless. And my dad, made, yes, I hear you, I hear you. So my dad's a doctor, and, and uh, I wanted to play football, the real football, American football, okay? And Thank you, Chad. <laughs> and so my dad had told my brother and I, well, you can play football, but you have to play at least one year of soccer first because I want you to get stronger. I want you to run. That was a problem for me because I hated running. And so what I did is became a goalie. <laughs> Hey, hey, 
So then my dad was kind of like, well, that's not fair. It kind of got out of it. But the goalies had to run and everything, and we had to do all kinds of stuff. And it was fun. I enjoyed it. But uh, American football is the real sport. So anyway, in the midst of that, I can remember my dad watching me, and he was telling me the one time, he's like, Eric, you did a really good job on a particular play. You know, I was a defender at times. And he said, you'd be watching the game and and you would go and do what you needed to do. But as soon as you got done the play, you turned your back to the ball and walked back to your position. It's like you totally forgot that you were still in the game. And isn't that what happens to us? We go through a spiritual victory and all of a sudden it's kind of like, oh, great. And we start to walk away and we start to go back to what we think our position is and The Lord has to remind us, no, 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 there's still a game going on. Pay attention. They have this tremendous spiritual victory, and they have this tremendous moment where they have been set free from bondage by the Lord in an absolute miraculous way. But now they're about to head into the wilderness, and they're going to be tested in ways that they never thought about. Is God sovereign over that? Of course. Did God orchestrate it? You bet. Does the Lord desire to reveal himself to them in the midst of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. God is always seeking to reveal to us our need of him. There's never a moment where we don't need him. Amen? But in the midst of that, his ability alone to meet our needs. Where are you getting your needs met? When you have a need, where do you go to have it met? See, the Lord is always orchestrating our circumstances in order to reveal that he alone is the one that is able ultimately to meet our need. Folks, if you take one thing out of this sermon, take that. Because in the midst of all that Israel went through, God was constantly putting him in his circumstances that are difficult. It wasn't easy. But at the same time, he was trying to teach them. I've got your best in mind. I'll take care of this. You don't have to worry about it. Don't get out of joint on this one. It's in my hands. I'm sovereign over it. Three things. First of all, our physical needs. The Lord is always seeking to reveal to us our need of him, and he uses our physical needs to do that often and his ability alone to meet those needs. Secondly, our need of protection. Clearly, within Israel, there was a physical protection that was taking place, right? The nation of Amalek came against them, and so they needed to fight in the battle, and the Lord fought for them. The Lord strengthened them and gave them the victory in it. But there is a need for protection spiritually, as well. The physical is always secondary to the spiritual. And lastly, our need for a Savior. Our need for a Savior. The fact that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that we need the promised seed, which Paul tells us is Christ. So first, look at chapter 15, verses 22 and following. They have the song of Moses. They have the celebration. They go into the wilderness in Exodus 15, it says, Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now remember, this is about two million people with all the livestock and everything else. 
We know it's 600,000 men. We don't know how many men, or excuse me, women and children. We know that there was a lot. Some would suggest upwards of 2 million people, perhaps even more. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now, I want you to catch this word grumble. And in your Bible, it's okay to mark it, okay? If you're using uh, technology like an iPad or, or you're using something like market. Market, because from chapters 15 through, I believe it's 19, 10 times the word grumble is used. It is a massive theme within these stories. There's no water. What do they do? They grumble, and they grumble at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So Moses cries out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. The waters became sweet. So Moses uh, makes for them a statue, a regulation. There he tested them. The Lord tests them. He says to them, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. And then they came to Elam, and don't miss this. Where had they been? Mara? No water? They find water that's bitter? not usable water, and they throw a tree into the thing. The Lord uses it. It becomes sweet. And then they came to Elam, which is only, uh, if you look at a map and you see where we're going here, it's probably only a few miles away, right around the corner. They come to Elam, and what do they find? Twelve springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camp there besides the waters. Did the Lord know where he was leading them? Of course. Did he know that they were going to get to Mara and there wasn't going to be any water? Of course. What was he doing? He was testing them. Was he doing it in order to put them down? The Lord never does that. James tells us that. The Lord never tests in order to cause somebody to trip and stumble and fall. The Lord only seeks to prove, which is fascinating. The question is, did the Lord know what he wanted to do? Did the Lord have an answer to it? Did the Lord already know the solution? Did the Lord know that Elam was just a little bit down the road, so to speak, and that there was plenty of water there, and there was even shade, and there were even date palms in the sense of food? Yes, of course. In chapter 16, verses 1 and following, you get the story of the manna and the quail, the meat. <laughs> this is great. They set out from Elam. They spent a little bit of time there. All the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, <clears throat> which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So about six weeks into this journey. Right? Three days into the wilderness, they come tomorrow, there's no water, so they obviously spent some time uh, enjoying the date palms. And then they continue on, and about six weeks after they had departed from the land of Egypt, they go into this wilderness, and the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now, who are they grumbling against? There's the word grumble again, mark it. Moses and Aaron. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, where when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Wow. What? Seriously? 
<laughs> Pots of meat? Hey, hey, do you, do you remember the bricks? Do you remember the bricks? Do you remember that Pharaoh said, oh, you, you guys are lazy, so I'm not even going to give you the straw in order to make the bricks. And now you're going to make the same amount of bricks that you had to before when we were giving you straw. And now we're not going to give you the straw. You got the same quotas. D- does any, anybody kind of remember that? You were slaves. Slaves. Now you're free. Does anybody remember the plagues? Does anybody remember the, the Red Sea? Hello? You brought us out into this wilderness to kill us. <laughs> can, can you imagine Moses? I, I mean, that's pretty funny. One of these days, I'd like to sit down with Moses and say, Moses, I know the past is the past, and I know forgiveness is there. But what were you thinking at that moment? I want to, let's get into your inner emotion here. What were you feeling? Can you imagine? The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against them, right? Verse 4, the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we? This is the greatest. What are we that you grumble against us? (laughs) Every leader ever in the history of mankind goes, oh, I get that one. I understand that. Right? What are we? You're grumbling against the Lord. The Lord brought us here. We're just following the Lord. Why are you grumbling against us? You can translate the word grumbling as murmuring, being upset. There's all kinds of ways of looking at this. We absolutely get this picture, don't we? Manna is sent. I'm going to rain bread from heaven. Boy, this is amazing, right? Manna. In verse 31 of chapter 16, it says, The house of Israel named it manna because they didn't know what it was. They saw it and they said, what is it? So they named it that. And it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Sounds good, doesn't it? In fact, it was such a profound moment that that the Lord wanted them to to remember that he had done this for them. He set it out in the morning. It was like dew. And all of a sudden, here was all this manna. They were going to collect it. They were only supposed to get enough for the day. And on uh, Friday, with the Sabbath day coming, the next day, Saturday, what did they do? They had to gather a double amount so that they didn't have to work on the Sabbath day. And the Lord preserved it. If they took too much, it would spoil by morning. So they learned to take exactly what they needed, step by step, moment by moment. Because why is the Lord doing this? Is he doing this to put them down? No, he's doing this in order to teach them, I've got you. I know exactly what you're going through. I brought you to this place in order to teach you about me. Moses says to Aaron in chapter 16 verses 33 and following. He says, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years. 
until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This generation that has been rescued out of Egypt ate manna. They had quail, but they ate manna. That's what they ate. They never seemed to be able to get to, in effect, a deeper walk with the Lord, a more mature walk with the Lord. They didn't trust the Lord to go into the promised land. They didn't trust the Lord to go into the land that he had already promised was theirs. And they ate manna. Psalm 78, 25 says, Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. Isn't that an interesting statement? We don't know what this man exactly was. We know what it was like, whether it was actually the, the bread of angels. Fascinating. Do angels eat bread? Well, Psalm 78, 25 says, Man did eat the bread of angels. It must have been good. I mean, we complain if we have the same meal twice in a row, don't we? Forty years, same thing. It's amazing. What's God doing here? He's teaching them. He's instructing them. I want you to trust me. Wherever you go, no matter what it is that you face, no matter what it is that you come across, and he's doing this through their physical needs. In Exodus 16, verses 26 through 30, we have the institution of a Sabbath day of rest, which is a physical day of rest in order to worship the Lord. Simply put. He says, six days you shall gather manna, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather. They found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? So evidently the Lord obviously didn't send it on, on, on Sabbath day. They went out to go look for it, and there was none there. They were supposed to collect what they needed for two days the previous day. And the Lord said to Moses, how long? Are you going to refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Beautiful picture of a group of people that have been enslaved now having an opportunity to rest physically for the sake of worshiping the Lord, of focusing on the Lord, and a beautiful picture of God's provision for them in the midst of this entire story. Well, they go on in chapter 17, verses 1 and following. It's the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord. They camp at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Now, we've been through this. They, they had Marah. There was a little bit of water, and it was bitter, so Moses was instructed to throw a tree in it. Here, there's no water at all. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Do you see how this works? You are quarreling with me. I'm the leader that God has commissioned to be in this position. But ultimately, you are quarreling against the Lord. The people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? (laughs) Now, folks, lest we put them down too much, let's be real. Two million people in the wilderness, no water. What if you had your children there? What if you had your children there? 
And you begin to see them diminish and get weak. You begin to watch the store of water that maybe you are carrying with you from the last place begin to decrease. And suddenly, there's not as much of it. And you begin to realize real quickly, hey, we, we really do need water. And then it becomes an emergency because the water's gone and there's no more water to fill it back to replace it. What, what would you do? What would I do? They'd be careful to look down on them because this is a great picture of our flesh. This is a great picture of our flesh. What happens when we get into the midst of circumstances that are way over our head that God orchestrated for us? What do we immediately begin to do? We begin to look at ourselves and what our needs are, and we begin to wonder, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? So Moses cries out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people a little more? And they will stone me. They were, they were frustrated. They were angry. They were fearful. The Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and that people, all the people, may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Ten times, Exodus 15 through 17. Spiros defines this Greek word. It's translated out of the Hebrew. He defines the Greek word as this. It indicates rebellious expressions of complaint and dissatisfaction against the Lord in particular. Do you realize all bitterness is ultimately directed at the Lord? (laughs) I'll never forget hearing that for the first time from my wife. And I didn't know that I agreed with that too well. I'd never heard that. I thought, wait a minute, I'm not mad at the Lord. I'm just frustrated about the circumstance. Who's sovereign over the circumstance? Who allowed the circumstance? Who even, at times, created the circumstance specifically in order to teach me? And when I start to get angry about the circumstance or bitter about the circumstance, when I begin to complain and I begin to grumble about the circumstance, who am I ultimately grumbling against? Who am I ultimately complaining against? The Lord. Oh, that takes you a step back a little bit, doesn't it? Is how much time do we spend complaining and grumbling about our circumstances? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and following, I won't read all these verses, but Paul is speaking about this particular generation, this, this generation that had been rescued out of Egypt. And he says in verse 6, these things happened as examples for us. He's writing to believers, he's writing to the Corinthian believers. So this is directed at us. He says these things happen as examples for us. All the things they went through, it's an example to us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Wow. Do you mean a believer can crave evil things? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. John finishes his epistle and he warns us in 1 John, little children, do what? Guard yourselves from what? Idols. Idols. He says, don't be idolatry, idolaters. He says, don't, don't let us act immorally. 
and the consequences that took place. Don't try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. And then he says this in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now he's saying that to believers. He's saying here's an example of what our flesh looks like apart from Christ in the sense of when we are walking in unbelief and we are called to walk by belief in faith. So let's not grumble. Let's not test the Lord. Let's keep our eyes focused on him. Well, in the middle of this journey and in the middle of these lessons, in Exodus 17, we get this story of the people of Amalek coming to fight against Israel. In Genesis chapter 36, verse 12, we find out that uh, Amalek is this grandson of Esau. So these are, in effect, distant relatives to the Jewish people, to the Israelites. And this story is really interesting because here comes these people. They're going to attack them. And so they begin to uh, follow the direction of the Lord. And one of it is that Moses is to go and stand on the Lord on a hill and take the, the staff of the Lord, and he's to hold this staff up. And as long as he's holding this staff up, Joshua, who's the commander of the army, will begin to win, and he will have victory, and he will uh, continue to do well in the midst of the battle. He will prevail. But if the staff starts to come down, which at one point it did, what happens? The Amalekites start to win. And so, <laughs> I like this, Aaron and her, not Ben-Hur, but her, okay? And it's not H-E-R, it's H-U-R. Aaron and her go up and they put a rock down for Moses to sit. And then one of them stands on one side of Moses, the other stands on the other side. And they help hold up Moses' arm so that the staff of the Lord continues to be lifted high and Joshua prevails against the Amalekites. Folks, the victory is the Lord's. The victory is the Lord's. What's the picture here? Not only in the physical needs, not only in the things that they are going through, but in the fact that there's protection that they need. That there are things that are going to come against us at times. It's the Lord's battle. Are we trusting in the Lord? Do we recognize that this is of God and God orchestrated it or certainly God allowed it? Either way, God's going to bring glory to himself out of it. And in the midst of it, are we trusting him? Are we walking with him? Are we yielded to him? Well, Jethro comes. You remember Jethro? Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. And so Moses has a problem because he's got all these people and he's got to help judge. He's got to make decisions. They've got problems. They've got issues. And so he's got to sit down and listen to them all. Jethro comes to him and he praises the Lord. I love chapter 18, verses 8 through 9. He tells us, uh, Moses tells his father-in-law, Jethro, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord had delivered them. And I love Jethro's response. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So they have a special dinner. All the, all the uh, elders of Israel come in and they meet with Jethro and he introduces them. He's married Jethro's daughter, obviously. They sit down, they have a wonderful meal. And the next day, verse 13, chapter 18, it says this, came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. 
Now, think about this for a second. Here's Moses, has this wonderful time. He's gone through these experiences. He's seen God, God work in miraculous ways. So he goes and sits down, and he's going to listen to the problems of the people. And the people are coming to him. We don't know what all the problems are. We don't know what all was said. It's things like, hey, he stole my tent. What are you going to do about it? He took my manna. Well, <laughs> I'm out of manna? I don't know. Uh, we don't know what he said. We don't, but he sat there all day listening to this. <laughs> and I could just see Jethro. Jethro had to evidently sit there with him. And Jethro's going, this is nuts. Moses, what are you doing? Not only are you going to wear out, but you're going to wear out the people. And so here, here's an idea. Set up leaders within this congregation in order to make sure that the minor disputes are able to be handled by the people with that maturity level. Make sure that the other types of disputes are are being taken care of by people who are wise and they're not in it for themselves. They're not in it for their own gain. And then if they've got a problem and they can't come to a decision on the matter, then let them bring it to you. And that's a great picture of ultimately where we get our elder form of government. It's fascinating. This began right here. It's the seeds of it. Not all the detail of it, certainly, etc. Did the Lord know what Moses needed? You know, in the midst of all this stuff that's going on with the nation and the water and all the different things they need, the quail and, and the manna, and God sends those things to them, and they're able to eat, and they're able to have what they need. And he begins to reveal how he's trustworthy in the midst of all the physical needs he, he doesn't forget Moses. I think that's a beautiful picture. Whatever you're going through, understand the Lord may have all these big things that he's dealing with, and he, he may be dealing with all kinds of stuff around, but you know what? He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you're going through, and he's able to meet you where you are. Amen. That's a precious thing. Jethro comes alongside, and as a result... Moses chooses able men out of Israel, makes them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and of tens. And so they judge the people at all times. They're constantly listening to the problems, making sure that they're being taken care of and the difficult disputes they would bring to Moses. But the minor things they themselves would judge. It's a beautiful picture of how God is not only taking care of them physically by providing them the water and the bread and the, and the food that they need. He takes care of them in terms of protecting them from Amalek, but now he's also helping them in the midst of organizing and just making sure that people are taken care of. Well, in the midst of this, we get to the law in chapters 19 through 20. And I'm not going to go through all of, you know, chapters uh, 21 and following all the sundry laws. There's all these specific details if this person kills this particular livestock and they did it in this particular way, then they need to repay this person. For, we're, we're not going to go through that. Take time to read it. It's fascinating, okay? And it's, it's some of the, the greatest uh, rules given at that particular time in terms of, of how they are to treat one another. Women are treated uh, with far more respect than they've ever been treated before. And there's all kinds of ways that you can see how God's hand in this in order to teach them about his righteousness is brought out. But the Decalogue... The Ten Commandments, that's an amazing thing. And in chapter 19, verse 1, it says this, The third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, so three months into this, 
They came into the wilderness of Sinai. If you remember, when Moses was taking care of Jethro's sheep, and he was on uh, this area, he was in this area, he was on the Mount Sinai, the Lord appears to him in the burning bush, and, he, and the Lord tells him, I'm going to bring the people back here to meet. And now he fulfills that. They've been brought back to this place. The Lord tells the people, or tells Moses to prepare the people to meet with him at the mountain. He's going to appear to them in a thick cloud so that he can speak directly to them. Wow. God's holiness is being revealed here in a profound way. These people have come out of a land where everything was worshipped. They had all these gods, and God sent the plagues in order that the Egyptian gods would be put down. That people would recognize that there is one true God. And he's the God of all gods. That he's the all-powerful one. But they still have a bit of Egypt stuck in them. They still have to learn to trust. They still have to learn to walk with the Lord. And so the Lord is going to meet with them. On the third day, the Lord descends upon the mountain. Lightning and thunder, smoke, and the ground shakes. There's earthquakes. The sound of a trumpet was heard, and it was increasing in its loudness. And as Moses begins to speak to the Lord, there's the sound of thunder as God speaks back to Moses. Can you imagine? They weren't to touch the mountain. They weren't even to allow livestock to touch the mountain. They were warned, uh, go back down. Moses came up onto the mountain and then was sent back down and then told to bring Aaron with him. But the Lord tells him, you make sure that these people don't try to gaze through the cloud God's holiness here is being revealed in a powerful and mighty way. In chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, it says this, God spoke all these words saying, now listen to this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Wow, can you imagine Standing there, uh, the whole nation of Israel, all the promises that they had been given, the things that they had watched God do through the plagues and through the, the, the rescuing through the Red Sea, now in the wilderness for three months watching how God provided uh, the water and provided the quail and the, and the manna, how he protected them from Amalek, how he has helped orchestrate and, and organize them. And here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God descends upon this mountain. And the whole thing shakes, lightning and thunder. Moses is speaking to him face to face. Claps of thunder. And suddenly the Lord speaks to the people. All their little ones with them. Incredible. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who rescued you from slavery. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't Aaron. It wasn't your elders, your leaders. It was me who did this. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. The Bible Knowledge Commentary makes this statement, and I think it's actually understated if I could put it that way. One of the great events in the history of Israel and perhaps in the history of all mankind is the giving of the law. 
Wow. Think about that. Think about whatever historical moment that you want to think about and think about it as being uh, absolutely imperative to our understanding of history as we know it. And go back to this. It's one of the greatest moments in history as God gives to these people the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are all about a relationship of the Israelites with God. Right? No other gods before me. No worship of other idols. Not to take the name of the Lord in vain. To remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. The last six are all about social relationships within the covenant community of Israel. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. It's not kill. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet, whether it's house or wife or servants or animals or anything. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are given. Let me ask you something. Why are they given? Now, I want you to think about this. Were they given in order for the nation of Israel to have a path as to how they were to be considered righteous before God? Is that what we're talking about? Again, quoting from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the law was not given so that the Israelites, by keeping it, could attain righteousness, a right standing before God. A righteous standing before God has always been only by faith in God. Not by works, but by faith. Abraham kept all the Ten Commandments and therefore was considered to be righteous before God. Really? That was 400 years before. He didn't even have the Ten Commandments. No, he believed, and it was considered righteousness. The law functioned to show the Israelites their sinfulness in contrast with God's standards of holiness and righteousness and to condemn mankind. See, when we look at the Ten Commandments, this is not a ladder to get to heaven. The Ten Commandments serve us as a means by which we recognize that we need a Savior. And it did them as well. Because God's holiness and his righteous standard is so unattainable by us to accomplish it and of our own strength. God gave these Ten Commandments in order to reveal to them that they needed him. And God is always seeking to reveal himself to us, whether it's through our own personal, physical needs, whether it's through protection, or whether it's the recognition spiritually that we are in need of a Savior. He's always desiring to reveal himself to us, to show us that we do have need, and that he alone is the one that can meet us at our need. He is the answer to our need. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and following, Paul speaks to this, and he makes it very clear. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law, Through the law, by the means of the law, comes what? The knowledge of sin. Wow. I begin to realize, oh my goodness, look at these laws. They're they're great. 
but I begin to look at them, and when I begin to try to do them in and of my own strength and in and of my own self, then I immediately begin to realize the fleshliness, the sinfulness of my flesh. Because I realize I can't measure up to these laws. In Galatians 3.19, Paul answers it this way. He wrote Galatians hacked off. And so Galatians is just kind of a commentary on Romans, except really short, because he was mad at the Galatian believers. He says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And then he says in verse 24 of the same chapter, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by works, by our own effort, by sincerity, absolutely not. How? By faith. By believing in God. The Lord gave the Ten Commandments. He revealed His holiness to Israel in a very profound and unique way. Why did He do that? Did He give the Ten Commandments so that they would have a ladder to climb in order to make sure that they were justified before God? No. He did it so that they would recognize that they needed Him. They needed the Savior that He had promised. That it was by Him and Him alone that salvation for eternity would take place in their lives. God is always seeking in the midst of our lives to reveal to us that he really is the answer to our needs. He's the answer. You know, sometimes we laugh because we say, oh, what's the Sunday school answer? You know, any answer or any question given, the answer is Jesus. But you know, there's a truth to that, isn't there? There really is. Because Jesus is the way. He knows exactly what he wants to do. He's sovereign over everything that's taking place in your life. If you're his, he is working for your benefit, even when you don't think so. (laughs) Even when you can't feel him. Has there any been times where you're going through something really frustrating and you can't feel God, you don't even sense his presence, and you're wondering, where are you? Come on. If you hadn't got there, well, just wait a little bit. Because the Lord wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. And the Lord is always encouraging us to lift our eyes up, to have them fixed upon him. So in the midst of the circumstances, guess what? He's not caught off guard. He knows exactly what we're going through, why we're going through it, and what he wants to do in and through us in the midst of it. Always. Because he's sovereign. What needs do you have? What is it that you think you need that you think somehow God isn't taking care of? Or what is it that you're going through? And some, some of it may be very difficult. Very difficult. We have people that are, they have cancer. We have people that are hurting. We're not just talking about needing something that really doesn't matter a whole lot. We're talking about really impactful things. What is it that you're going through that you need to maybe be reminded of this morning? The Lord knows exactly where you're at. The Lord cares. The Lord loves you. And that he's sovereign in the midst of it, that you can trust him. So let me give you three things. First of all, take your need to the Lord knowing he already knows your need. He's not caught off guard. He's not caught off guard. He knows what your need is before you even ask. 
I think sometimes, and I'm saying this from personal experience, right? Uh, no big eyes and little eyes at the cross. It's all equal ground. We all need the Lord. There are times where I go to the Lord and I start telling the Lord about the circumstances that I'm frustrated about as if somehow he didn't know it. <laughs> We're such children, aren't we? We're such sheep. We really are. And praise God that he loves us. Secondly, purpose in your heart to trust him, believing he knows best. Make a decision in your mind. I'm going to trust the Lord. I believe in his character. I believe that he's got my best in mind. I believe that he's working all the time, all around me. I believe that he'll take even difficult circumstances and bring good out of them for me because I love him and I'm called according to his purpose. So go to the Lord and purpose in your heart that you're going to trust him, that he does really know best. And lastly, and oh, this is the kicker because this is the faith one, right? In the midst of it all, receive from him whatever he chooses to do. You catch it? Receive from him whatever he chooses to do. How many times do we go to the Lord and we in effect say, Lord, I, I, I know that you know what I'm going through. And Lord, here's my solution to the problem that I want you to do. Don't we do that? We do it all the time, don't we? Be willing to say, Lord, I trust you. You already know what I need before I ask. And whatever you choose to do in this circumstance is okay with me. Because you're good. And you know the thing about it is, this is what I found, and maybe some of you have as well. The Lord normally works it out better than whatever your plan, whatever my plan was in the first place. Amen? The Lord knows exactly how to do it, and he knows how to do it way better than we do. Are we trusting the Lord? Hey, in the midst of circumstances, what happens? God begins to change us. God begins to transform us. And then through us, as we begin to walk with God by faith, and we go to him in humility, yet with boldness because of God's grace, and as God begins to do a work in our lives, and as God begins to transform us and renew our minds as we get into the word of God, and we begin to recognize how God is meeting us right where we are in the midst of it all, all of a sudden, people from the world who don't have hope begin to watch us, and they go, what? What's your plan? Well, it's actually the Lord. What are you doing? And how is it that you have that kind of attitude in the midst of these circumstances? Well, it's because Christ lives in me. And I can't take any credit for it. It's the Lord, not me. Folks, when people begin to ask us, what is this hope that you've got? What a privilege it is to be able to share with them that it's Christ, that it's the Lord. And hey, by the way, he wants to know you He wants you to know him as well. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.